2.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity and sustainability. Hello, you're on the Paradigm Ship with Ian. Thanks very much, Quentin and Jazz, for another good show. Uh, today's show on the Paradigm Shift is going to be about um, the left. We're continuing in a series. We're moving to New South Wales today and we're going to talk with one of um, the 60s prominent radicals, Meredith Bergman. Meredith first came to fame when she and her sister, her younger sister, ran onto the Sydney cricket ground during the famous Springbok test match and they temporarily halted play because the Springboks were supporting South African apartheid. And the rest, as they say, is history. Meredith went on to become the president of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly, and I have quite an extensive discussion with her about her forthcoming book called um, Radicals, Remembering the 60s. So that will be on in a few minutes. But before we go there, of course, we're in the middle of a state election campaign. And as always, Paradigm Shift tries to pick out some interesting candidates to interview. Today, we've got John Jiggins, another person from the anti-war movement, um, like Meredith Bergman. And John is talking about his candidacy in the forthcoming election. So let's go to John Jiggins now. Can you please introduce yourself? I'm Dr John Jiggins and uh, I'm standing as a candidate for South Brisbane in the coming state election. Why are you running for South Brisbane? One of the things I'm doing it for is um, based on New Zealand um, referendum, I'm sort of giving the cannabis users of South Brisbane a chance to vote for me and then sort of go on and as a protest vote and to record their support for the legalisation of cannabis, which is my main platform. And then because I won't win, they can vote secondly for their favoured candidate. And um, cannabis users, you know, are criminalised and the anonymous polling booth is one place where they can safely make a mark to end prohibition of this marvellous medicine and also to strike a blow against their criminalisation. Okay, so how does that work practically? I tell people that's what I'm doing and that, um, as I said, it gives the people who want to make a stand against cannabis legalisation to use the vote as, um, well, 
for two things. Firstly, to vote for me, and secondly, to vote for whoever they would have liked to have voted for. Can you give our listeners some sense of your political philosophy? Well, I'm a civil libertarian, as uh, I've defend people like Julian Assange, and um, I try and talk about, you know, the criminalisation of people in Queensland because but there's this skyrocketing rate of imprisonment in Queensland. The number of prisoners has increased by 50% in the past decade and as a consequence we're going to have to build all these extra prisons. We've already got prisons at a 130% capacity and we're going to have to build two new prisons at a cost of $3.6 billion and um, so by, um, you know, changing the way we use the prison system by changing from a punishment paradigm to a restorative justice paradigm, we can um, get rid of those two extra prisons that they need to build. Uh, drugs are a very big issue in South Brisbane, uh, particularly amongst Indigenous youth. Um, some years ago, Uncle Sam Watson tried to buy a community centre so that he could introduce a, a, a program for young people. Young, Do you support that? I think what you've got to have is instead of, you know, treating drugs as a police problem, you've got to go back to treating drugs as a health problem. And that's what we used to have. If you look at um, Australia... 82 years ago, that's what we had. And that's the way to do it. By criminalising um, drug users, you just create a criminal state and you actually subsidise the black market because every dollar you spend on drug law enforcement is worth $10 to the black market. What about drugs like ICE? How do you deal with that? Well, certainly not the way we're dealing with it at the moment. The whole war on ICE has been a real social policy disaster, and the police don't really talk about that, and the media don't really talk about that. But when you do a cost-benefit analysis and find out what's happened as a result of the war on ICE, um, what you find is that it's had no effect at all. If you look at the rate of methamphetamine use over the past decade, it's tripled. And um, what they've done is create a $9 billion market. That's how much... Well, that in Australia... Look, that's an Australian figure. I can't give you a Queensland figure. But um, the wastewater monitoring people, um, their most recent measure was about a few months ago, um, oh, sorry, they're 19, uh, 2019 figures. They estimated that there was now 11 tonnes of ice being consumed in Australia, that the um, value of the market was $9 billion. Now, if you go wind the time back to when they started the war on ice, the problem was a third that. The industry was probably worth only $4 billion, and... Um, 
they were consuming a third less ice. So it's been an absolute disaster. And prohibition is always a disaster. What prohibition does is produce an age of gangsters. I read a book of yours and some years ago about... At the moment, we've got a huge increase in crime because of the way we've, you know, handled the war on ice. I read a book of yours some years ago, I think it was about Donald Mackay, and in it you gave a breakdown of the economics of the drug trade. And I think the main uh, drug of concern back then was really heroin. And I think that, if I'm, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, wasn't the, the military often behind the, the, the drug trade? It's the US who's behind the drug trade. And um, one of the real problems... Um, is the corruption of the police force. <clears throat> but with the drug trade, you get something which is called noble cause corruption, which is when um, you use the drug trade to finance armies, secret armies who are fighting for the US. And there's heaps of secret armies fighting for the US. Controlling the drug trade is one of the ways you control the world. Just changing the topic a bit, um, do you support the unions in Queensland? Yes. So uh, do you support, for example, the con construction, forestry, engineering um, and mining union? Oh, look, obviously I don't support everyone. Like, there's obviously differences in the union movement and... Um Generally speaking, when I say I support unions, that's um, what my family have always done. We've always been, well, working class and, uh, you know, we've always um, supported unions. And I realise that there's different factions fighting in the union, so... Um, OK, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, all right, well, as I said, I've, I've um, you know, used um, Paradigm Shift to, um, you know, really present the problems with the um, problem... with, um, you know, the justice system in Queensland. But, uh, yes, we've got to change quite a lot of things about it, and we're faced with spending $3.6 billion just to build two new prisons. And if you look at the QPC report, which um, I did do a big program on, they estimated that you could, by legalising cannabis, you'd it would be a billion dollars benefit to Queensland. So over the next five years, we would save $3.6 billion by not building two extra prisons, and we'd save another $5 billion from a, um, that would be the economic benefit of legalising cannabis. So it would be, it would be worth $8.6 billion to, in benefits to Queensland if we legalise cannabis. If people want to get more information about your campaign and what you're standing for, what's the best places for them to go? The best article is the one I wrote for the West Ender, so westender.com, I think. It used to be a newspaper in West End, now it's a sort of website, and it's got um, quite a lot of useful information about all the candidates in South Brisbane, and you'll find my information there. Thank you very much, John.
was Marianne Faithful with uh, John and Oko's song A Working Class Hero and um, now we're going to get to the main part of our show and talk to Meredith Bergman who is a, uh, a radical from the 60s and it continues our look at the left in Australia so last week we looked at uh, some of the people prominent in the left in in Brisbane and now we're going to um, the people in the in New South Wales so let's have a listen to the first part of Meredith's talk with me you're on the paradigm shift it's 12:15 community radio 4 triple z yourself my name's Dr Meredith Bergman and I used to be a academic and labor member of parliament there's an old saying on the left about the communist party that if you go to melbourne you'll find maoists if you go to sydney you'll find stalinists and if you go to brisbane you'll find anarchist is there any truth in that old saying well no i wouldn't agree with that at all i actually think that certainly if you go to melbourne you'd find maoists but i think there would was a very anarchistic strain in the Sydney Communists. And the whole philo- uh, Sydney political philosophy was very influenced by the bohemianism and the push and uh, libertarianism. And they've had a long anarchist tradition. So, yes, there were also Stalinists, but there were Stalinists in, in all state capitals. Yeah, that connects with me because there was in Brisbane in the 60s a, a bohemian element to the Communist Party and I think that's partly why they were uncomfortable about the events, for example, in Czechoslovakia when the the Soviet Union rolled the, the tanks into Prague. Well, don't forget the um, Australian Communist Party was the first 
communist party in the world to come out in opposition to the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia. And its leadership at the time was a Sydney-based leadership of Laurie Ahrens and uh, Eric Ahrens. You've co-authored a book about the new left with Nadia Wheatley. What is the main proposition behind the book? Well, it's not really about the new left. It's called Radicals Remembering the 60s. And what we're looking at is what happened to people who came from fairly normal or conservative families and found themselves radicalised by what happened mainly in the late 60s, but we go through to the early 70s. We've sort of defined the 60s as being from 1965 to 1975. And we've looked mostly at Vietnam, but we've also looked... It spread wider than that. We've also looked at sort of cultural changes that were occurring. We began by thinking it would be a purely political book, but then we kept thinking, no, because other stuff that was happening in the 60s was so interesting too. So we've ended up interviewing an actor, a folk singer, light and uh, mist machine show maker, uh, a visual artist. So we've looked at very much the 60s as a as the counterculture as well as the political culture. We're talking about a, a young, vigorous oh. group of people who are experiencing yes. this. Yes. On the whole, the people that we have interviewed were young at the time of the change that came to their lives. And some of them, of course, had been um, drafted uh, and some of them were facing the draft. Some of them were very opposed to the Vietnam War. Others got involved in Aboriginal land rights. And we've interviewed um, three Aboriginal activists themselves. And, of course, what was going on in their lives were very different. In fact, when we interviewed Gary Williams, who was a terrific uh, activist and helped set up, you know, the Redfern Aboriginal Legal Centre and, and things like that, he... When we asked him about Vietnam, his reaction was that he didn't get involved in those demonstrations because he saw that as a white fellow's war. And yet he was just as quintessentially part of 60s radicalism as were the students who were going out on the street every week. His comments sound a bit like Muhammad Ali, who said that there's no Vietnamese person had already thrown racist comments at him. Yes. And yes. uh, so maybe the the Aboriginal movement here was strongly influenced by the civil rights struggle in the United States. They were very influenced by the civil rights struggle. But Gary's position on the war was slightly different to Muhammad Ali's. Muhammad Ali's was saying, well, why wouldn't I support the Vietnamese? Because they'd, they'd never been racist to him, as had white Americans. And then, of course, he gets very involved in the anti-apartheid campaign and the demonstrations against the Springboks, which happened in 1971. And, he, and of course, that's so much clearer to him. It is about race and, and it is about uh, fighting apartheid and global racism. You yourself were involved in the anti-apartheid protests in 1971. Yes. Can you say how this movement was successful? Oh, it was... Well, it was very successful, uh, ultimately. We, we set up a uh, Stop the Tours campaign in 1969 and we were really aimed at stopping the... Um, uh, rugby union tour in 1971 and the cricket tour that was to follow six months later at the end of 1971. So um, we started demonstrations against South African teams that were coming to Australia, 
um, and don't forget, they, these are all white, racially selected teams. Um, blacks were simply not allowed to even try out for them. Um, and so we demonstrated against the basketballers and tennis players and um, surf lifesavers. And then the big one, of course, was the rugby union team, the Springboks. And there were huge demonstrations in Brisbane too, as you know. In fact, Peter Beattie got badly beaten up at that demonstration and he has always talked about it as being a, a very radicalising influence on him. Why I say we were terribly successful was we, we didn't actually stop any football games. There were huge demonstrations all the way around Australia, mainly in Sydney, of course, because that's the heart of, of rugby union in Australia. There were five matches in, in Sydney and some in rural New South Wales. So there were huge numbers out at the demonstrations uh, and I and my little sister and two others managed to run onto the ground. Very few people got onto the ground or, and we actually stopped the game. And there are still old guys in South Africa today that when you're travelling around South Africa they'll say, oh, oh I remember that, I remember, because they used to listen to it on their transistor radios in the dead of night um, and of course they all supported Australia because they so hated the Springboks. Yes, the great success of the anti-Springbok campaign was that we were really aiming to stop the cricket tour that was coming six months later and the head of the uh, cricket board in Australia was um, Sir Donald Bradman and so we were aiming a lot of the protest not so much at him but we wanted him to take notice of it and he started writing to me and I started writing back to him and I've still got those letters where we discuss the whole thing about racism in sport they're, they're, they're quite interesting letters they've been shown in various exhibitions but when Sir Donald came to announce in about September of 1971 that they were not going to have the South African cricket team come to Australia at the end of the year we always expected him to say, look, we can't guarantee their safety. safety. But he actually said, we do, we, Australia will not play them until um, apartheid is no longer their system of government and that they have a non-racial system of government which was fabulous. It was exactly what we wanted him to say. And um, I've always been a bit of a Don Bradman fan since then because he, he, they really took a stand. So, we, yes, we did see the anti-Springbok activity as being very successful. And, of course, but in 1976... Oh, when, when Gough Whitlam gets in in 1972, he makes it that Australian teams can't go to South Africa and South African teams can't come to Australia. But by 1976, all the Commonwealth countries had stopped having um, sporting relations with South Africa. You're on the Paradigm Shift with Ian, and we're talking with uh, Meredith Bergman, who is has written a book called Radicals, Remembering the 60s. Let's go back to that interview now. You mentioned there that, that uh, our former Premier, Peter Beattie, participated in the anti-apartheid protests and for his trouble he was 
arrested and beaten up inside Trades Hall. Right. At a recent lunch in Brisbane, Peter Beattie came out very strongly in support of Israel. So why is it that people were willing to actually come out strongly and get arrested on the question of apartheid in South Africa, but less able to do that over the Palestinian human rights? And don't forget, you know, the vast majority of Australians supported the Springbok team coming to Australia. We were a, a great, we were a minority. But I think it's a bit like the the way in which the Australian public was totally split over whether the, the Moscow Olympics should be boycotted. Um, and often these queries come up, and I've always argued that... Um, Really, to, to boycott a sporting team, it needs to be a sporting issue. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to play sport with any other countries, really, because there are so many terrible human rights abuses going on, and you know, and including the, the human rights abuses against the Palestinians. Um, so I've always said you've got to, it's got to be tied to a. a to the sport in some way and as far as I know that um, Israeli sporting teams um, that come to Australia I don't even know of any actually because we don't really play the same sports as as Israel um, so in, in and that was one of the clear things about the Springboks was that um, rug, uh, rugby union and cricket were the great white sports of South Africa and we were one of the few countries that were still playing them and, and they were sports that were important to us too so so i think that that's why it's just not in terms of, of getting big demonstrations like against the spring box um against the israelis it's it's not going to happen in 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 the sporting arena you were on the first australian brigade to cuba why did you go and what did you take away from that oh goodness um Yes, I, we, I wasn't even terribly aware it was the first uh, the first brigade. I mean, it's now well, that was in 1984, so it's you know 40 or so years since then. Um, we went to basically cut sugar cane for the revolution, which is what you did in those days. Um, we didn't actually cut any sugar cane. We uh, worked on building sites and also in citrus you know orchards we were we were fruit pickers um what did i take away from it um that that on the whole cubans were pretty happy with with what was going on yes there were restrictions and of course one of my um co-brigadistas was was a gay guy and he was very interested in the fact that you know the cuban leadership at the time had a pretty sort of Latin American attitude towards homosexuality that has got better um, but on the whole I liked a lot of what I saw we were you know we were skeptical about some some of their uh, arguments uh, but on the whole um, I'd prefer to be a poor person in Cuba than a poor person in America actually um, and, and, and I'm still quite sympathetic to the Cuban 
regime, although of course it has had autocratic, um, you know, the leadership has not always been fantastic. Concerning the green bans by the Builders Labourers Federation in Kelly's Bush and Woolloomooloo, do you think that similar bans could be effective in fighting climate change? I've often asked this question, why, why don't green bans happen again? They happened at the time they did in Sydney because there were no uh, there was no legislation at all that protected any building or any green area um, or any public space. The uh, Environment Act and the Heritage Act just simply didn't exist, and developers were rampant. A lot of hot money was flowing into the country from America, so overdevelopment was just unbelievable and what you had in the New South Wales Builders Labourers was this really uh, enlightened leadership of Jack Mundy, Joe Owens and Bob Pringle and they first of all they fought very hard to have very democratic practices they were only paid as officials they were only paid the same amount as Builders Labourers were paid uh, when the industry was on strike they didn't get paid um, they brought in limited tenure of office where you, you, you could only do two terms before you had to go back on the tools. So they had a, a, a membership that was very loyal to them. And uh, when Jack Mundy started talking about the social responsibility of labour and talking about labourers working out for themselves what they should use their labour for, um, it really struck uh, a, uh, a nerve and uh, so you had a, a union that was able and, and willing to take uh, part in these bans don't forget it was also a building boom it's very, it would have been very hard to do this in the middle of a recession and so you had a enlightened leadership a, a loyal rank and file a building boom and no, absolutely no legislation protecting anything. And um, so that's why the Green Man's happened. And also the, the, the labourers were prepared to physically defend the the, the Green Bands. And, and often they did and often they were arrested. They were always ending up in court. Um, whether those conditions would ever happen again, it's hard to say. Also, don't forget, there is now legis the secondary boycotts legislation and, and another IR um, uh, legislation has, has made it very difficult for unions to take what take action over something that is not strictly a wages and conditions issue. So, and also, of course, unionism is so much weaker now than it was.
What if your boss said you're going to work to tear up the planet cause you're fucking berserk? What if your boss said to knock down the trees to bomb civilians and then spread the disease? Would you say fuck that or not going to work? Rock the foundations of the capital works? Or would you just recede and proceed to wait with your shoulder burden from the pain in the weight? In the 70s on the east coast Builders, laborers were like burning toast In the kitchen of the fucking elite Vietnam protest every two weeks Shit hit the fan and it was getting deep A wolf was the system and the people were sheep Trade unions were busting a move In defense of the right of the people to groove To their own tune And I mean the fuck Not that half-baked cooked up conveyor of junk Fair paying, not dying at work 36 hours a week on their turf Falling off the towers to get up every cement These were the things a weak union meant So you could be damn sure they wanted every cent At the enterprise bargain worked out in the tent And when AV Janus wanted Kelly's push They called him a shopper to get fucked off the books And despite the bad press and the filthy looks They decided that they still try to battle the crooks They battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, the BLF, they battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, the BLF, they battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, the BLF, they battled the crooks, that's the BLF, green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man. BLF, green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man. BLF, green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man. LF, green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man, yeah Trade unions busting a move in defense Divided the people to groove to their own tune And I mean the fun, not that half-baked cooked up conveyor of junk So fucking groove, fucking groove Yes, it sounded the movement Now the work bands spread all across the city 40 work sites were barred without pity Stop the concrete, break the poor Hold up the project till you give us some more More pay, more safety gear and meal time And pay the migrants the same as shit's fine Black band actions to save the block Pink bands telling homophobes to back off Green bands to protect the parks That's why Sydney's fucking world class Three billion dollars worth of shit on hold Which is no mean feat in the era of cold war Anti-communist fear, but the Soviets were calling their shots here Genuine revolutionary action, not just slogans, but lots of traction Grassroots union, rank and file, the BL's going that extra mile Yeah, there's a black man uh, Meredith, we've talked a lot about your background, but we'd like to focus now on the book that you're co-authored with Nadia Wheatley what, what is the book called? It's called Radicals, Remembering the 60s. And it uh, really is that. We, we have interviewed 20 uh, different people, ranging from Geoffrey Robertson and David Marr to, you know, black activist Gary Foley and uh, actor John Derham, union official, later Minister for Transport Peter Batchelor, uh, Peter Manning... Um, Margaret Reynolds, the um, Queenslander, you know, Senate, Queensland Senator and Minister for Women, uh, people who were actually radicalised in that crucial period of the late 60s, early 70s. And we also extended it out to... First of all, we thought we'd be just interested in the political radicals and then we decided to look at people who were doing radical things in art and in drama and in music... 
because really the 60s was a very interesting period. One of the things we discovered that, that often our characters or interviewees had very similar backgrounds. Religion was important, the Catholic-Protestant divide was important in, the, in their early lives. They had uh, parents who were really quite conservative. Uh, the parents, <laughs> there was this absolute love of, you know, the lovely Mr Menzies, who sort of, he was this giant figure over the 50s and 60s. And then you have them coming across events in their own lives which which radicalised them. Mostly it was Vietnam. For, for Jeff Robertson, it, it was actually censorship for the Aboriginal uh, people we've interviewed, like uh, Bronwyn Penrith and Gary Williams and Gary Foley. It was... Um, the, the fight for land rights and well, the fight for, for, for indigenous rights generally um, for for some some of our interviewees people like Joseph Sobsky and uh, Margaret Reynolds it was very much about women's rights uh, for um, Brian Laver it was about uh, he was a Queensland student radical it was about uh, not what he saw as tyrant telling him what to do. Um, but there were others like um, LSD Fogg, who was a... He was a light and colour and mist machine guy who was very famous in Sydney in the 60s. But his influences were all about the art scene and changing, changing art and theatre. And, of course, John Derham, the actor, his... Uh, his changes came about through the plays that he was uh, appearing in, like the anti-Vietnam plays, like Arts Vietnam, and then just anti-war plays generally, Private Yuck Objects, Sergeant Musgrave's Dance, uh, all those anti-war plays that were very um, popular in, in the late 60s. So everyone had a different experience, but they also had similar experiences along the way. Surely they, uh, this idea of a transformation, that could apply to any epoch in history, couldn't it? Not merely the 60s, where because of the times there's a transformation in people from one set of political beliefs to another. Um, not so much. You really don't have the the huge change in people's political ideas that happened. Uh, people went from voting for Robert Menzies to voting for Gough Whitlam. Um, that was a huge change, and that was mainly generated by the young and the whole issue of Vietnam. See, don't forget, when young people today say to me, well, why was Vietnam so important? I say, well, it would be exactly the same today you'd have exactly the same response if we sent young men off to another country to kill people in a war that we didn't agree with and that we drafted them for that. I mean, that has never happened since and it won't happen again, is my view. It, it really was a hugely all-consuming issue. And, and also on, on apartheid. I can't see any country sending us an all-white racially selected sporting team again. So these, these were big issues and they did change people's views about the world. 
In November of 1966, the federal election campaign was fought on the issue of Vietnam and conscription, and the Labor Party took a principled stand against both conscription and Australia's involvement in Vietnam. Yet Harold Holt won a landslide victory then. Why was it that by 1972, why did Whitlam get traction with the Australian people but not Arthur Corwell? Well, it took a long time to convince Australians that the Yellow Peril wasn't going to come uh, to Australia. They they really did believe that communism would... that w- that we would be facing communism if uh, Vietnam wasn't fought. The, the, the expression that was used over and over again was, we've got to fight it in their backyard or otherwise we'll have to fight it in our backyard. And people really believed that. And yes, the Labor Party took a principled stand in 66 and 69. They almost won in 69. And really it took huge demonstrations and a huge amount of effort by a lot of people. Vietnam consumed lives. It split family. There was a huge schism in the, in, the, in the community about Vietnam. That went on for four or five years before the majority of Australians decided that it was a really dreadful and awful war for us to be involved in. It, it was the first war that we saw on our television sets. We'd come home at night and there on our sort of boxy little television set in the corner there'd be shots of, of dead Vietnamese that didn't really show a fallen Australian. But that was very confronting to Australians. And and so it, it, it did take some time for the arguments to get... for Australians to, to, to accept that we were right. You mentioned that there was a... Ch- am I right in saying there's a chapter on Geoffrey Robinson? Yes, yes, I interviewed Geoff Robertson about, you know, what radicalised him because he came from, you know, really quite a conservative family in... Um, in Epi, I knew him. We knew each other as teenagers, so I found it very easy to interview Jeff. And the thing that radicalised him was the censorship issue, because of course you weren't allowed to see or hear anything in Australia in the 1960s. He was shocked that the public school that he went to, he went to Epping Boys High, that their copy of The Tempest, which was the Shakespearean play that they were studying for their what was then called the leaving certificate that their copy of the tempest was expurgated and left out all the sexual stuff whereas the copy that the private school boys were reading on the train had all the stuff about um caliban and 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 the 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 more the more sexual side of the whole play and and this seems to have really scarred jeff's soul the fact and i think some of it was resentment that um, state schools were being treated in a way that the private schools weren't too. And he'll admit that. He'll say that, yes, that a lot of it was about resentment of the of the private schools. But then, of course, he gets involved in other issues, you know, the anti-hanging stuff. Quite a number of our uh, respondents were very radicalised by the hanging of uh, Ronald Ryan. Uh, John Derham was actually demonstrating outside the jail in Melbourne when that happened. And Jeff also gets very involved with the early Aboriginal rights campaigns too. So he he becomes radicalised by that 
experience in the late 1960s. In the last few months, he has been giving legal advice to Julian Assange over the extradition to the United States to face almost certain imprisonment over spying allegations. Now, does he talk about, you know, what led him to be that, to get to that kind of, of issue? He's very open about the fact that he felt he had to stay reasonably respectable. He said, you know, he was very in favour of me going off and getting arrested, but he felt that he had to keep his nose clean so that he could appear for us in the in the courts and and be the respectable person who would stand up for the rights of radicals. In fact, if you look at his uh, recently uh, published memoir, it's called Rather His Own Man in Court with Tyrants, Tarts and Troublemakers. And he always talks about me as one of the troublemakers that he appeared for in court. So he, he, he saw his role in, in a radical movement as being the defender in the courts of the radicals. A number of um, radicals from the 60s, yourself included, later joined the Labor Party. Why did you do that? Well, I was living in Glebe in the middle of uh, 900 Housing Commission houses. And so, so every day I saw real poverty uh, happening. And I just took the view that, yes, you might be waiting for the revolution... But in the meantime, you really had to be fighting for better conditions, better social welfare, better wages and conditions. So, and the part, obviously the party that would um, deliver that was the Labor Party. So uh, a whole bunch of us uh, joined the Labor Party. I, I joined in 1971. And, and also we were pretty interested in the idea of um, Gough Whitlam being able to win so there was a, a huge upsurge of interest in the Labor Party in the in the early 1970s. Would you say that there are differences politically between the people in the book about that as a, a strategy? Oh yes obviously we say we interviewed Trotskyists, anarchists, people who'd call themselves pragmatists, people like me who ended up in the Labor Party but look, just looking down the list of the 20 people we interviewed, most of them are not in the Labor Party today. A couple of them ended up as... Like, I've just seen... Uh, interviewed with Peter Duncan, who ended up the Attorney-General in South Australia and, and who, of course, was the first person in Australia to introduce legislation to decriminalise homosexuality. So, I mean, people had lots of different interests. Less than half the people that we interviewed w would have been in the Labor Party. Do you think a, an interesting aspect of people's transformation is not so much when they come from conservatism to a radical position, but when they align their radical beliefs with their own self-interest? What do you mean by that? Take an example of Brian Laver. He was uh, in the very first person in Queensland from the university to be employed by the State Secretary of the Trades and Labor Council into a research position. And he, at the time, was, you know, a well-known radical out on the streets, getting arrested. His political beliefs 
seem to align with the trades hall uh, for that period of time but then later he turned to anarchism and re- particularly during the moratorium campaign rejected the trades and labor council's ways of of organizing against the war look and i think i think you know you've raised the issue which is happens over and over again which is do do you take paid positions which you think at the time might help your beliefs or do you always stay on the outside and you've just got to make uh, judgments about that the women's movement have been worrying about this for a long time do you uh, fight from outside or do you become a femocrat and uh, it really depends on what you do when you're uh, you are in those positions as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I might you might accuse me of doing the same thing by becoming a Labor member of Parliament, but you, you just hope that what you're doing can help what you actually believe in. Well, of course, the, the Labor Party of Gough Whitlam, Whitlam is vastly different from the Labor Party of um, Albanese. It, it depends upon the time in which these things happen, doesn't it? Like, uh, of, of course it does. Of course it does. And, um, and equally, I mean, OK... In the case of Labor, he was drawn into a, a student working class nexus, you know, where there was corporation for a number of years. Sorry, but, who are you talking about? Uh, Brian Labor. He, oh, he, yeah. he he joined with the, you know, there was a, a student worker alliance that he then... I don't think it's terribly helpful just to... I, I, I didn't write the Brian Labor chapter, so I'm not even aware of anything other than that than what's in the chapter well i suppose that is is it a case that there's okay you you can have a transformation from being conservative to being a radical but then as the the struggle goes on and there can be in in certain circumstances a change in the political beliefs of the person in order to align those with um their current interest political positions changed throughout their life of course i mean i don't believe exactly the same as i did 40 years ago or 50 years ago of course not but there are some core beliefs like you take jeremy corbyn he he held core beliefs and he persisted with them for over 40 years and no matter what they threw at him you know all the accusations of him being anti-semitic and all that he didn't allow that to transform him uh he he didn't you know he, he wasn't a person who was looking out for his own self-interest because he didn't gain very much by it did he well he became leader of the labor party yeah but he he transitioned the labor party towards his his original beliefs didn't he he, kept, he didn't transform himself from <laughs> I, know, I think this is a this is a fairly tangential d- discussion to talking about the 1960s but uh, you know, we'll take Bob uh, Hawke I, for I example. I admired Jeremy Corbyn, but yeah. he was, you know, he he destroyed the Labor Party to some degree in that they now have the lowest number of seats for a very long time, and you know we're we're stuck with Boris Johnson. I mean, that's if you're just looking at you know practical results. Anyway, if you want to talk about the 1960s, I'm very happy to. Haven't a care 
That's Margaret Road Night with Girls in Our Town. Uh, let's go back to the last part of the interview that I did with Meredith Bergman, who was the went on from cutting cane for the revolution in Cuba to being the president of the New South Wales Upper House. Let's go back to that interview now with Meredith Bergman. You're on the paradigm shift. It's coming up towards five minutes to one. As far as the publication is concerned, who is the publisher, when are you going to release it and how are you going to get it out there? Well, it's being published by New South Publishing, which used to be the University of New South Wales um, Press, but it's now called New South Publishing. It's, it looks terrific, I must say. I really like the cover. Um, we're still just fighting about how many photographs we can have in it because <laughs> you want lots of photographs in a book like this. It's, it was meant to be due out this year, of course, but with COVID, um, it's now coming out in April 2021 and it will have the usual marketing arrangements that, you know, major presses use. And, of course, um, I'm assuming that the baby boomers will be buying it too because it really is about their lives. And that's why we, we used... We, we included the, the people from the arts community too in the people that we talked to. 
it, without the culture travelling with the political change, there's it, it, not much hope. <laughs> yes, and, and like we talked, one of the people we interviewed was Margaret Roadnight, who you, you might remember, she was a fabulously, she was tall and wonderful um, folk singer who used to, with her, her acoustic guitar, stand on the back of the trucks at the moratorium and, and just sing and you could hear this wonderful voice. And talking to her about her radicalisation was really interesting because she came from a really quite conservative Catholic family in Melbourne and she sort of just grew into it through the songs she was singing and her great uh, transformative experience was... Um, the songs of Malvina Reynolds, who sang... Oh, the one about the rain. The one about... And you don't realise until the end of it that it's about nuclear rain. Ah. Um, and the other one, of course, was Little Boxes that she was well known for. Yep. So it's, it's really interesting what people actually found to be a radicalising force for them. Yeah. I, I love her song, Girls in Our Town, yeah. which, with That's this the one interview. That she was famous for. Yeah. And, of course, her, her feminism grows out of, of that sort of thing too. Well, one of the really endearing things about Margaret Roadnight was her consistency and she kept a, the faith with local musicians and she didn't ever look to be ultimate you know, stardom or to be someone separate from the, from the other musicians. It's not quite the right word, but she's a very humble person. It was... And I, Recently, I went to a show. This is pre-COVID, of course. I went to a show that she and some of the other wonderful women from that period, like Jeannie Lewis, put on at the Cell Block Theatre here in Sydney. And just watching her play again, and it was just wonderful. And, and it was quite clear that the other people performing all loved her and appreciated her too. So it was terrific. OK, um... I want to thank you and I will pay heed to what you've said about going off on tangents. But I just wanted to make sure, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, uh, except um, do, do buy the book, uh, Radicals, Remembering the 60s. Uh, it's by uh, Meredith Bergman and Nadia Wheatley. And of course, Nadia Wheatley, the... I probably should have said this, uh, who I'm writing it with is one of my dear friends that I met in the late 60s. We met through our um, activism and anti-Vietnam activity and, and being locked up in um, jail from time to time together. That's how we became friends. And she, of course, is a, a prize, multi-prize winning um, author. And, uh, you know, she, she won the Premier's Prize for her wonderful biography of Charmy and Cliff and she's won numerous other prizes too uh, so it's a, uh, it's a it's a fun book that we've put together really about our our lives in the 60s our, like we both have a chapter in there about our own lives but we've then gone off and interviewed these other people we tried to find the most interesting people that we could to interview so we hope it will be fun I'm quite a fan of actually the of Nadia's um, biography of Charmaine Cliff. <laughs> yes. There's some some very good bits in there. <laughs> yes, but she's a she's a terrific writer. Yeah, I've learned a lot from her.
Great. Okay, well, thank you, Ian. That was All right. fun. See ya. Thank you, yeah. Bye. Bye. That was Meredith Bergman of Radicals Remembering the 60s. We're out of time. Sean's waiting to tool up next door. Let's go out with the song that, that uh, Meredith mentioned, Malvina Reynolds, What Have They Done to the Rain? Remember, it's got a sting in the tail. And by the way, you've got four hours to get down to King George Square. There's a demo on about climate change and climate justice put on by the, the uni students. See ya. Just a little rain falling all around The grass lifts its head to the heavenly sound Just a little rain, just a little rain What have they done to the rain? This is Grace and Lily Rose with your 12pm Z-Lines. Queensland is set to ease coronavirus restrictions this afternoon following 36 days without community transmissions. Two people have tested positive for COVID-19 in the last 24 hours, but both are in hotel quarantine. From 4pm today, you can gather in groups of 40 people in homes and in the community. Senior students can dance at their school formal, 40 people will be able to dance at a wedding and aged care residents can go on excursions. There are currently four active cases in Queensland. Multiple ARIA award-winning singer Amy Shark has been confirmed as the headline act for NRL's grand final on October 25th. The Queensland-born artist was just nominated for Best Female Artist, Best Pop Release and Best Australian Live Act for the ARIA Awards earlier this week. Shark is best known for her hit single Adore, which came second on Triple J's Hottest 100 after its release in 2017. Shark says she has been a long-time fan of the NRL and is a Broncos supporter. In national news, a new survey from the Heart Foundation found that most Australians would not feel comfortable using an automatic defibrillator if someone was in cardiac arrest. Automatic defibrillators can be found in most public places such as schools, shopping centres and gyms. But one in three of those surveyed had never even heard of the device. Bill Stavreski from the Heart Foundation says it's important people feel comfortable using this device, as chances of survival drop by 10% for every minute in cardiac arrest. 
Local residents should not be afraid to use an automatic defibrillator. You don't have to be medically trained and it's the best way to ensure that people can survive. So the best thing is to step in, use an automatic defib. It's a step-by-step guide and it will help save somebody's life. Former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's petition for a royal commission into Rupert Murdoch's News Corp has gained over 200,000 signatures within a week. Mr Rudd called News Corp a cancer on democracy and cited concerns of its power to shift public opinion for its own agenda. News Corp currently owns almost 70% of all print readership in Australia. In international news, YouTube has joined Twitter and Facebook in banning material from QAnon, a baseless conspiracy theory that has gained traction on social media. YouTube says that it has already removed tens of thousands of conspiracy theory videos that could potentially incite real-world violence. Twitter announced its crackdown on QAnon in July and Facebook followed suit last week. A 12-year-old Canadian boy, Nathan Hrushkin, discovered fossils which scientists say belong to the hadrosaur, also known as the duck-billed dinosaur. Nathan has been commended for his handling of the discovery, which led to a conservation team uncovering 30 to 50 more bones in the same canyon. Scientists believe that the discovery could help fill in knowledge on how dinosaurs evolved 69 million years ago. For weather today, it's mostly sunny with a high of 28 degrees and a low of 14. You can expect a light northeasterly wind in the afternoon. That's all for Zedlines today. Thank you for tuning in. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at 4ZZZ News. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist depression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift. You're with Ian. Of course, that is a song which all the tribes of the south east corner of, of Queensland have adopted as the welcome song. Um, and it shows a, a great spirit about it because it talks about how people are welcome and to bring anything, you know, anything that they want to this this place. And uh Everyone has a right to a voice in the world. And uh, interesting that the Z lines this week are covering COVID, artists at the NRL Grand Final, and, of course, Kevin Rudd turns up again with uh, 200,000 signatures on his petition to try to, to curb the excesses of the Burdock media empire. But why, Kevin, didn't you do it 
when you were 07, Kevin 07, and you had the power to fix that media mogul's monopolies. Anyway, that's another story. We're going to uh, look at the Brisbane left today as best as we can. It may even move out into other parts of Australia, but we'll begin here where we live. Um, We're going to start with a, a news item of our own, but this news item is created by a Dr John Jiggins, who is a candidate in the South Brisbane electorate for the Queensland upcoming Queensland elections. And um, he's, he's talking about uh, drug law reform, and he does an interview with um, Abe Gray, who uh, runs a marijuana museum in New Zealand, who are also having their own election. And we're going to hear from from uh, John and Abe about what's going on on this referendum that they're going to have virtually on whether marijuana should be legalised or not. So let's go to that interview now. In terms of uh, those of us hopeful for a yes vote, a lot of us are quietly confident that will squeak through, but it's it's fairly widely acknowledged that it's going to be close. And the last polls that we have access to, and, you know, probably half of people have voted already now because we have early voting, uh, the last polls were wildly all over the place. And, you know, different people on whatever side you're on had complaints about the methodology of the polls that did or didn't favor them. But but the highest one was 52% yes, and the lowest one was 39% yes. But a lot of those still had undecideds. And all the hard no's are saying no, of course, because it's about the culture war, not the facts. But those undecideds who, who genuinely researched it, you don't have to like cannabis to want cannabis to be controlled. And, and that's half of this bill, and the name of it is the Legalization and Control Bill. It's rather like those in a Republican referendum where most people wanted a republic, but they were actually had to vote on a, a particular type of republic. And you're being asked to vote on a particular type of regulation, aren't you? Do you want to talk about that? Luckily, we have a bill. It's not just a vague promise that can be interpreted or misinterpreted a million different directions, but it is not a binding referendum. In contrast to the other referendum, which we're strangely having at the same election about kind of life choice, where a bill has been formed and already read through Parliament and accepted subject to the outcome of the public vote, uh, in this case, we've actually got a draft bill that's just kind of indicative of where things will go, and then subject to the outcome of the public vote, we will um, then it will get read through Parliament. So there will be tweaks in the first, second, third reading. There will be a select committee process with public submissions. So it could wiggle a bit either way, depending on the makeup of the next Parliament and the makeup of that particular select committee. But it's pretty good what it is. Two plants, home growing. They have a potency cap, which to me seems a little bit unworkable. Not for the home growing. It's a tightly regulated commercial industry, not completely government controlled, but not as um, not as commercial to capture the full economic benefit that we've seen overseas. I would say. What are you hoping to do if if it does go ahead, if the referendum is won and the government does legalise cannabis? What are your plans? Well, the interesting distinction in our bill, actually, from anything we've seen in other jurisdictions globally, is that it formally legalizes consumption venues 
and that's a definite given. There's really, you know, the, the restrictions around those venues and where they can be could change, but there's going to be venues, and nowhere else at a national level really has that. So it has the potential to be globally groundbreaking. My cannabis museum has operated an informal BYO sort of supporters club to, you know, get donations to fund our museum outreach where people consume cannabis openly, just as we did at our protest. We've been doing that. If the legal opportunity arises to do that in a more formal setting, we'll definitely do that. Interestingly, the public controls around cannabis in the bill are very, very restrictive, you know, along the lines of sort of public health literature, much more restrictive than alcohol or tobacco. But, you know, taking the ideas behind that type of regulatory environment and to the extreme. And so no branding, no signage, plain packaging, no advertising, no sponsorship, just because we're going to be allowed to do it, but we can't really be excited about it or, or share our enthusiasm with anyone because that might encourage someone and they really want to presumably keep cannabis use at the same level or not, not increase or even decrease. There's one exemption to all those prohibitions on communicating about cannabis and enthusing about cannabis, and that's museum exhibits. So funnily enough, um, our museum will probably continue to be the primary location of exposition of cannabis history and culture. We, our plan was to actually pop up in the Capitol this year, and of course COVID got in the way, closing down all tourism and hospitality venues just as we were about to do that. But now we're looking forward to uh, the largest city, and because we won't be able to do it until post-referendum, um, yeah, it makes sense to go up there where the majority of the people are. And if the referendum is successful, we will roll out a consumption venue model and uh, bring that to other cities in the country. And uh, if not, then we'll continue advocating just as we always have. And we'll take the newfound enthusiasm and almost majority that we do have and uh, leverage that to, to get further destigmatization. Now, does anyone talk about the uh, benefits of tourism to New Zealand if um, it was legalised? Because I'm sure there'd be lots of Australians who would love to go over and oh, have totally. the experience of legal cannabis. Exactly. Yes, mate. We're looking forward to it. I mean, uh, of course, they have to allow tourism to happen again. But, you know, I'm confident that will happen at some point, hopefully sooner than later. But, yes. Uh, it's a no-brainer. You know, pop across the ditch for the weekend, uh, indulge your senses, and, you know, in, in every possible way. And, you know, the important thing to note, I guess, is we just got medical cannabis in April here. And so people haven't really come to fully appreciate that yet. And the New Zealand companies that have been licensed haven't brought out their first products yet. But as soon as they do, you know, in many ways it'll be like California because people will get a single GP to prescribe them for whatever ails them, and then they can go pick up even dry flour for vaping in the pharmacy. And so uh, even if the referendum's unsuccessful, we'll be catering to that market and having more explicit consumption venues for medical users because that will be the route that people will take for access if the other one is denied to us through the referendum. Too many straight white males playing guitar Rock music's a bit of a monoculture God, open our horizons New sounds and ideas Seek out what's good Not just accept what's obvious God, create space 
for different perspectives Hear someone else's viewpoint We might even learn something We gotta imagine the future Not just recreate the past There's too many straight white males Playing guitar If it happens that you're a straight white male Playing guitar is still pretty great That was uh, Andy Payne with Straight White Males and before that we heard from um, Abe Gray from the Cannabis Museum uh, formerly located in Dunedin but currently planning to reopen in Wellington and he was expressing his views on the outcome of the New Zealand's cannabis referendum. In fact when New Zealanders go to vote this Saturday there will be two referenda, one will be on euthanasia uh, to allow it and the other will be to legalise cannabis. So they're fairly advanced over there across the channel. And uh, that, of course, was John Jiggins conducting the interview and he's running for the local seat of South Brisbane in the upcoming Queensland state election. And, of course, John is pushing for drug law reform. So we hope to interview him next week. Now, you're on the paradigm shift with Ian and we're talking about the Brisbane left. Uh, There's an old saying about the communist left in Australia Melbourne is where the Maoists come from, Sydney has the Stalinists, and Brisbane, the anarchists. Now, the anarchists were always big on running bookshops. For example, in Sydney, there was the Jura Books. I think it might still exist. There was another one, Anaris, which we'll more about that later. There's Emma, there was Emma's Bookshop in West End, run for many years uh, by Brian Laver and... Fiona, who who later became the uh, proprietor of the very successful Avid Reader bookshop. And, of course, Zapata's, which was at the community house, Himza House in Horn Street in West End. However, most of these bookshops are now gone. As you know, the paradigm shift has been covering the activities of the Brisbane anarchists since the anarchist summer school in 2011. Over the next few weeks, we hope to bring you stories about anarchists from the Red North and also hopefully further south, Uh, lefties as well. We are going to start with an interview from The Vault. And this is uh, the Brisbane anarchist Barbara Hart talking about Ursula Le Guin, the, the author, Ursula Le Guin, who herself was known as an anarchist and Barbara is talking here with Linda from Eco Radio on 4ZZZ a couple of years ago after Ursula Gwynn had passed away in January of 2018. Personally, I find this a, a very good interview because I've always found Barbara Hart, who has been is a very experienced uh, political campaigner, 
I've always found her to be one of the most consistent of all the anarchists in Brisbane. So let's let's go to that interview with Barbara about subversion. Ursula Le Guin passed away uh, earlier in the year. That's right, I think January the 22nd, I think. She was a science fiction writer, mm-hmm. but also an anarchist. She never actually said openly that she was an anarchist because one of the things I read, she said she didn't know whether she was good enough to come up to that title of being an anarchist and also she didn't want to have something pinned on her but she all her books like the dispossessed especially the dispossessed are really are about anarchist societies so yeah she was an anarchist but she just didn't pin that label on her so she could appeal to lots of different groups i think yeah, yeah. okay a lot of people have said that dispossessed was a very formative novel for them yes yeah and can you mention, like, can you just tell us the storyline? Well, I haven't read it since the 80s, but I remember the storyline. It's about a revolution on Earth, and it doesn't say Earth. They've got different names for the planets. Um, and the group almost won, and but not quite or something. And so they were allowed to go to the moon of this planet, which is a very barren place, and set up their society, their anarchist society. The main character that they, they concentrate on is Shevik, I think. What they had wanted was to have complete decentralisation, but because they were making a lot of the decisions and getting the information with computers, it just so happened that it was easier to have a central place for that. And they realised that this could become a problem because you could get centralisation. When the book opens, the society's been going for about 170 years or something like that, and and some of the characters are a bit worried that it's starting to crystallise, you know, like the the old spirit's not there anymore. That's sort of like the main thesis and, you know, like how you keep a revolution fresh. And one of the things that Le Guin believed is that you um, you don't make a revolution like in the, the old Marxist sense of you make a revolution and, it's, you know, you sort of made it. Um, it's an ongoing, continuing thing all the time and people have to really believe in the ideals to keep growing because it's not a it's there's no end it's it's not an end a revolution is an end it's a continuing process and this is another thing that's brought out in the book and the 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 one planet urus that's the the planet that's sort of more capitalistic yeah that's right it's just like earth because that the main character does go in his he's in a group that's trying to think how can we refresh the whole thing and he goes off to earth to see if there's any answers there because he wants to have an open mind and he just finds it's exactly like they've been taught um you know that by the founder uh the philosopher who sort of is like a combination of Kropotkin and emma goldman you know it's um everything's based on money and um social relationships are sort of hierarchical and eventually he decides well he's going to go back and he does actually talk at the united nations and stuff he actually does he has to escape eventually because he's talking to people there and um, he goes back to his to the moon and he, with his um, where the society is and he decides he's going to try and refresh the whole you know keep working at refreshing the whole thing that, that's a basic story outline yeah what, what I've come up to so far in the book is is that he's he's on Eurus and he's starting to wonder like where the other part of society is He's only That's seen right. the, mm. the sort of rich and the... Uh, Proprietarian. Proprietarian, yeah. And you're listening to an interview I did with Barbara Hart about Ursula Le Guin's book, The Dispossessed. 
you were saying that in Brisbane it, it informed some books and anarchist movement. Well, in, in Brisbane, in Brisbane it, it was tremendously popular, and especially in the 80s, um, a group of people who were around an anarchist punk group um, called the Tape Loops and their friends um, formed a social centre called Anaris, which was in the shop front in Bain Street, and anyone that knows West End Highgate Hill knows that shop front in Bain Street, and it's been made into flats now, but it was the whole the whole shop front, and they had a garden there, and they used to have music there, and um, it lasted probably a little bit over a year. Um, and the other initiative was um, a person who'd been involved with the beginning of Jura Books and Black Rose Books in Sydney um, moved to Melbourne in the early 90s, and he set up um, a postal book service. You know, you could actually ask him for a book. He could look at the list of books he had, and, and he'd you pay him and he'd send it to you so like uh, of anarchist books and he called that book service anaris as well and he's got a web page um which is named after one of the characters in anaris taxa t-a-k-v-e-r and it's a minor character and he said he picked that character rather than shevik the main character because he wanted to show um, and, and give honor to the ordinary people in that book who were really idealistic and really fighting to get the society they really believed in so that's why he named the book sorry his web page after um taxa and on this web page he has he has lots of um anarchist history from the 70s in sydney and, and melbourne um and so that lasted for about 15 years until about 2009 and then um um his first name's john he he um would have probably being close to 60 then so he, he passed the service on to a group of younger people who wanted to take it over and put some energy into it so it's still going and i think um, he's still he's still writing as well that's right he's still collecting he's still writing he's very much into environmental um issues yeah and um and he he really said that like uh, it was one of the major inspirations of his his political life that book so um, I think I think a lot of people found it like that because it's um it's actually a story and a story about with the ideals of anarchism in like the thoughts of people like Kropotkin but you know like how many people have read those books from the 19th century but you put it in the story it's much more accessible um, and also it shows it shows um, it's not like um, like pie in the sky you know everything's going to be rosy it actually shows the problems you would have with an anarchist society. And it shows that people aren't perfect, but it shows that ways that anarchists would try and solve any problems that arose. So it's it's actually interesting. It looks at it looks at uh, an anarchist society with sort of like warts and all. <laughs>
That was the Gang of Four with Not Great Men. Before that, we heard Barbara Hart talking about the the novelist Ursula Le Guin and her connection with anarchism and the left. Drama at the Astor Theatre. Alan Anderson and I were in Brunswick Street, New Farm. We are both lovers of Brisbane, especially the Brisbane of our youth, the Brisbane of the 60s. Everything was brighter then. The colours were more intense, more tropical, and the very air that we breathed was laden with the perfume of flowering trees. The future was bright as well, and it promised us exciting times to come. I have lived here since my youth, and Alan's experience here in the 60s since he arrived from Melbourne as a young plumber and political agitator had left him with memories, good and bad, that he treasured for all the subsequent years. We passed the site of the old Village Twin cinema. That's where I first viewed 2001 A Space Odyssey while on my first acid trip, a potent conjoining of first-time experiences. I mentioned it to Alan. Usually, a reference to LSD would encourage the retelling of boring drug stories, but Alan had none of those. Yes, he said, it used to be the Astor Theatre. Reminds me of the 1966 federal election. Something in the way he said it suggested to me that he might have a story about it. So in anticipation of the pleasure to come, I became an attentive listener. I have learned I have learned that for a yarn to be told successfully, the teller needs an appreciative listener who knows when to prompt and when to remain silent. So I said, I was overseas for that one, but it was pretty pivotal, wasn't it? I had read about that election. It was highly charged. The Labor Party under Arthur Corwell fought it on the issue of the war in Vietnam and conscription. The ALP took a principled stand and was against both. The Liberal Party was held was led by Harold Holt, who inherited the Prime Ministership from Bob Menzies. Holt was a, a rather gormless character, but the press tried to invest in him some charisma by making plenty of references to his surfing and scuba diving, pra diving prowess. He wasn't as good a swimmer as he was cracked up to be, as it turned out, but that's another story. Yes, it was pretty important for a number of reasons, Alan said. Of course, the Liberals had been in power since 1949 and they had to consolidate under their new leader. And the war in Vietnam, conscription and the American alliance was the issue, especially for us on the left. But not many people were against the war then. As you know, it wasn't until the, the days of the moratoriums in 1970 and 1971 that massive opposition had built up. But at the time of that election, our mob, the Eureka Youth League and various peace movement people were still starting to get organised. I already knew my history and I was keen to hear his reminiscences. Where does the Astor Theatre come into it? Well, this was part of the Liberal Party getting organised for their campaign. 
Harold Holt was going to address the party faithful to G them up for the electoral battle and they were going to use the Astor. This was not for the general public. They wanted a large audience of enthusiastic supporters to provide the media with ample evidence that the Liberals had mass support. So anyone wanting to get in would have to have an invitation. So you and your comrades didn't get an invite? Alan said, no, but one of our people had a family member in the Liberal Party who got a ticket. We used it to make a heap of forgeries. So on the night, we came early. We flashed our tickets and made our way to the front. There were about 30 of us, mainly young ELers and other radicals. Paddy Gill was one of these. But no one challenged you? No, not then anyway. When I was seated, I had a look around and I saw a familiar bunch of special branch coppers led by Sergeant Leo Delange. I was looking at them and they were looking at me. They knew I was a troublemaker. For my benefit, they were punching their fists into their palms. I got the message and I said to myself, I'll get a hiding if I do anything. But it was out of my hands anyway, and as soon as Prime Minister Holt appeared on the stage, the heckling began. The noise was made worse by the abuse hurled at us by the Holt supporters, yelling at us to shut up. There was general uproar. Apart from our group, there would have been another thousand protesters. Save Our Sons had a banner <laughs> that when they held it high, the Liberal Party members tried to tear it down while the SOS people, Save Our Sons people, chanted, Save Our Sons, Save Our Sons. And others were shouting out, One, two, three, four, we don't want your bloody war. Harold Holt was flabbergasted, put off his stride. This was not what was supposed to happen, he must have thought. It would have been then that Paddy Gill appeared and when he arrived at the theatre he had slipped into the toilets and dressed himself as a frogman and waited for his cue. When the uproar was loudest he's made, he made his entrance. It was very dramatic. He was dressed in wetsuit, mask, goggles, flippers and everything. He, wasn't, he was even carrying a spear gun. As he stalked down the aisle the uproar built into pandemonium. Must have been quite a do, I said. Yeah, and that's not all. Do you remember Greg O'Dwyer, the announcer for 4BC? I think that was his name. He was Brisbane's very own shock jock. He was coming down the aisle doing an outside broadcast and was saying something like, Well, listeners... There seems to be a very rowdy element here tonight made up of well-known troublemakers. It was then that my friend Pauline jumps up, grabs his mic, pushes him away and shouts into the microphone, Stop the war in Vietnam! Stop the war in Vietnam! End conscription! It was then that the police grabbed me and frog-marched me down the aisle with Pauline coming up behind, hammering on the broad backs of the constabulary with her closed fists. They raced me through the foyer and with a parting shove sent me down those wide concrete stairs that I still remember so well. I had to run 
down them to keep my feet and the momentum took me into the traffic on, on Brunswick Street. Fortunately, the traffic wasn't as heavy then as it is now. Yes, I said, fortunately, and neither me nor Pauline got arrested. Pauline was quite feisty, I said, appreciatively of the young woman whom he was later to marry. I remember the morning after the second moratorium seeing a photo of her on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald of her being arrested. Yep, she wasn't doing anything, just standing there. She didn't want to get arrested because she was taking a sickie off work. Jack Mundy's wife got arrested too. That's when I first met Jack, both of us waiting to get our wife out of the slammer. I had a good long yarn with Jack talking about cricket and football. That was a pretty good story, Alan, I said. You'll have to tell me about your wedding sometime. Anytime. Just ask me. See, I'm a G. I'm a G. Pillar a soldier and I'm the D. Double E. A1 soldier for 303. Where they come from, their shoulders and that money. That money, 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 money. Keep money. Roll and see, I'm a G. I'm a G. Pillar a soldier and I'm the D. First I want to prove something, make you want to lose something, make you want to move something, this sun's going to do something, strictly, unique, native soldiers too deep, all action cost talks too cheap, the truth your earnings are too weak, ooh, gotta get your money right, gotta get your roll on, dinner one quick to pick up the cash, gotta get the wallet fat till it's swollen, if you're riding in a holder, maybe it's a fork too, the way, turn your system up loud and roll through your suburb like I See, do. I'm a G, I'm a G, pillar a soldier and I'm the D, double E, K-A-Y, I told you, 4303, where they come from, their shoulders and that money, that money, 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 roller, see, I'm a G, I'm a G, pillar a soldier and I'm the D, double E, K-A-Y, I told you, 4303, Take a look at dinner one in a million. Got your short Gumeroys in the building. Trouble signs, Reggie Murray's now stealing. All them shows with them flows that we're dealing. Off the Richter, someone get the picture. Making them mixtures with them intense fixtures. Make your head Say yes, go and nod your head. Do it to the rhythm, go. Come and break your neck like it's time to let it go. Get it low, so low. Get down, work it down. Get down, slow go. You didn't come here for nothing, so make yourself comfortable here. Riding low, keep it dipping and ducking. Chop it up until it's every gear. Listen up, I wanna tell you all something, so we can get this crystal clear. The room for 11 blackouts, gonna get it going off. Easy, I'm a G. I'm a G. Pillar and I'm the D. Shoulders and that money, that money, 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 money,
time to get this place jumping. Get that 808 bass pumping. I'm intoxicated, tasting something. Plus, I'm rolling with the marble cousins. It's nothing. For these Murrays to rock up and black it out. Riverview mob came in to pack it out. 4303, yeah, we back it loud. Women, they wanna be down. Quick to make something happen now. While we get the bungo double stacking now. Tell me who stands out in any crowd. DK. Listen, if you ever want a murder too, come and get it done. Get it done. Call on the room, 411, and ask for dinner. One. See, I'm a G. I'm a G. I'm a G. Drop by the Coffee Roaster on the corner of Montague Road and Anthony Street West End to roast your own coffee. Their in-house designed and manufactured Piccolo Chinook Small Batch Coffee Roaster allows you to roast coffee the way you want in only 15 minutes. With the choice of over 50 coffee origins to choose from, you can roast an award-winning single origin or create your own tasty new blend. The Coffee Roaster, sponsors of 4ZZZ. You're on the Paradigm Shift with Ian and we're talking about the Brisbane left and we're taking, we're getting some of the personalities from the left. Before the word from our sponsor, we had that song by DK, I'm a G. Gita, DK is a Brisbane black, but also a Camilla man, a proud Camilla man involved in a lot of activist struggles, not the least of which is the one out at Deebing Creek at Ipswich. He's also, as you can hear, uh, he, he's got, he's got, he, he knows all about uh, rap music, I can tell you. He's got a, that's from a mixtape of his that he gave me. I don't know if it's been made into a CD or not, but uh, best of luck with him on that. But he does a lot of work in music and, and around um, the traps. Uh, and before that, we had the drama at the Astor Theatre about the, the 1966 federal election and the, 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 the Alan Davidson and I, now the I there was not me, <laughs> I'm not a drug user for one, uh, but um, the I there was uh, Ted Reithmuller, who's now sadly passed away. Ted was a wonderful photographer uh, and used to cat- really uh, made us aware of all of the 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 placards the banners the people at the rallies right through that period up to recently so now the next part of the show we're coming up to uh, another personality her name is Di Zetlin and she talks in this interview with Peter Cross from Queensland Speaks she talks about going to uni and how she became a radical. She talks about her involvement in the union movement and the nexus between student and working class politics. Di Zetlin taught at uni 
and became the leader of her local union and then later became the National Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union. Di was involved in a weekly event at Trades Hall called FOCO where all manner of bands, um, light shows, speeches, a whole lot of stuff were going on in the late 60s. FOCO, of course, is a Spanish word that used by Che Guevara as a where he used to find secret places where guerrillas could hide and before they challenged the military dictatorships of Latin America and the Afri- and Africa. So um, we, we'll, ska- we'll skip on. Now, n- note that in Ted Reithmuller's story, the drama at the a- Astor, which is the old palace, the cinema down the road here at New Farm, Village Twin now, I think there's eight cinemas there. He mentioned the, the storyteller in that is Alan Anderson. So Di actually talks about Alan Anderson in this interview with Peter Cross. So let's go to Di Zetland speaking about how she became a radical. Can we begin with just a little bit about your early life? For instance, where were you born? Where did you go to school? Okay. I was born um, in Brisbane, um, but my family lived on the Darling Downs at the time. But shortly after I was born, they moved to Surface Paradise, which was then a wilderness. (laughs) Um, And I went to school at the Surface Paradise State School, um, which was then a tiny little school, (laughs) Um, and grew up. So, I mean, I grew up primarily on the Gold Coast, although we used to, my father still owned um, a farm, and so until he died when I was nine, we used to go up to the farm um, outside of Milmerran. Would you say you had an interest in politics before you attended UQ, or were you radicalised by this, this spirit of the times? I don't, I don't think I had a real interest in politics. What I, what I did have was a kind of, um, you know, a, a growing understanding that, you know, people's life experiences were unfairly shaped by their social background. So I, I came to the university with that kind of understanding. Di Zetlin speaks about how she becomes involved in radical politics. Well, look, I suppose in terms of being introduced to it, um, it was probably more through discussions that were taking place with um, people like Brian Laver and stuff like that. But I think there were a lot of us at the time who were, you know, who were very keen to move away from the kind of student-dominated image um, that the left, um, you know, that the left had. So I think a lot of people were were very keen to get engaged in that process that Alex MacDonald, I think, really initiated by employing Brian Laver as an assistant. um, At Trades Hall. At Trades Hall. Um, And so that, I mean... (laughs) To my way of thinking, that was an extraordinarily far-sighted um, kind of 
kind of move that Alex made. Um, and I don't think Foco would have been possible if there hadn't been that nexus. Um, and, you know, it was quite a strong nexus and I think Alex actually worked very hard to... Um, well, I know he worked very hard to make it work because it wasn't always easy to get it to work. <laughs> what do you think his motivation for that was? What was his attitude towards students? remember him um, you know as an incredibly wise and gentle man that's that's my recollection of him I think he was obviously um, I think he felt very keenly um, that the labor movement in a sense was seemed to be losing its heart to some extent I, I think Oh, and it's hard to think back to the 1960s and, you know, people like Arthur Caldwell and, you know, but these were not exactly inspirational leaders. <laughs> um, and I think Alex was very keenly aware of the fact that, you know, the, the labour movement actually needed to have that kind of vital engagement um, and that the labour movement, as it was presently constituted, wasn't achieving that. Um, I, I guess. I guess it's also. I mean, I've I've thought about this a little bit, and you know, I was quite. I developed very strong friendships with some of the younger generation of people who'd come up through the Communist Party. People like Alan Anderson, people like Barbara Bacon. Um, you know, and and the kind of experiences that marked them. You know, in particular, I think the 1956 referendum, you know, I mean, that must have been a horrifying period for, for young people to live through, you know, when their parents were kind of busily stashing away books and making plans for them to go and live with other families because if the referendum had succeeded, um, you know, there would have been a witch hunt or they were anticipating a witch hunt. Um, so I think that was that was a very kind of traumatic period for those people on the left of the labour movement and kind of to some extent to see the, you know, the energy and the kind of passion and, and optimism and confidence that was coming out of, you know, crazy radicals from the university. <laughs> um, you know, was something that I think no, I think they were actually looking to to revitalise some of those elements of the labour movement to some extent. Did, um, the, did the Eureka Youth League get some of that energy as well? Um, I think individuals within it did, or they certainly tried very hard. I mean, if you talk to someone like Alan Anderson, um, I mean... <laughs> The radicalism of the student cohort drove him to distraction <laughs> and, you know, he used to just tear his hair out um, at the way people talked and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But but I think at the same time, um, it, was, it was like they were saying, you know, that there's a potential future in this that, that we can't necessarily see out of the kind of 
tried and true formulas of organisations like the Eureka Youth League, which were on the decline. Um, you know, I mean, the idea that communism was a was a family business <laughs> really just didn't have the same appeal that that it used to. Um, so they needed to find, you know, some kind of inspiration out of that. Um, and I think that's why they put up with it. <laughs> because they, they really felt that, um, you know, there was, there was a potential there. Um, so... So I think for uh, more for individuals within the Eureka Youth League and indeed for members of the Communist Party as well as for sections of the Labor movement, there was a very genuine kind of attempt to understand what these crazy young people were on about. Some people within the Labor movement weren't so supportive, like Edgerton, for instance, Jack Edgerton? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, I think there were a lot of people within the Labor movement. I mean, we used to... Um, I mean, when FOCO was running most Mondays after FOCO, we would have a kind of debriefing session with Alex MacDonald to go through the list of complaints that had been registered <laughs> about what we had failed to do. Um, so there were a lot of people within the union movement who were very hostile to, um, you know, to all of this. Um, so it wasn't a, um, you know, it was it was by no means a kind of united, um, you know, united approach from the labour movement. Was it a class-based hostility? Um, we have to cut it there. Uh, that was Peter Cross talking with uh, Di Zetland, who was a uh, 1960s radical in Brisbane. And on the paradigm shift today, we have been talking about the Brisbane left and the personalities engaged with it. Uh, next week, I hope to do an interview with um, Meredith Bergman, who is quite famous as a one of the people with uh, Jack Mundy that was mentioned in the drama at the Astor story. He was the leader of the Builders Labourers Federation and Meredith Bergman and Jack Mundy took down the, the goalposts of the Sydney Cricket Ground when the South African team was touring and as a promotion for South African apartheid. That was in 1970. So I have a talk with um, Meredith Bergman next week on the Sydney chapter of this look at the Australian left and um, it, it should be quite an interesting interview that so here we are coming up towards one o'clock Sean is next door we're waiting for opinion police with bated breath now talking about bated breath but no implication is I'm going to play a song from that you know we've been talking about the Queensland left from the period of the 60s and early 70s. So let's take up a Bob Dylan song and go out with that. It's called Idiot Wind. And for some reason, Bob Dylan gave up on the left and decided he'd get into personal abuse. <laughs> but it's still an interesting song that he sung and it certainly captures a lot of the feelings of the time. So... 
That's me, Ian, from for this week. See ya. Someone's got it in for me. They're planting stories in their friends. Whoever it is, I wish they cut it out quick. But when they will, I can only guess. They say I shot a man named Gray and took his wife to Italy. She inherited a million bucks, and when she died, it came to I'm lucky People see me all the time And they just can't remember how to end Their minds are filled with big ideas Images and distorted facts Even you, yesterday You had to ask me where it was at I couldn't believe after all Good afternoon, this is Grace and Lily Rose with your 12pm Z-Lines. 
Moving to non-lethal shark control in Queensland is proving to be affordable and effective, according to a new report by stakeholders including the Humane Society International and Australian Marine Conservation Society. Non-lethal modern solutions considered in the cost estimate include drones, new barrier technologies and education. The estimated annual operating cost of non-lethal shark control throughout Queensland is $4.16 million. This is cheaper than the current amount of $17.1 million over four years proposed by Minister Ferner in June 2019. A man who underwent brain cancer surgery in New South Wales has been allowed to quarantine in his home in Queensland after public backlash at the strict border restrictions. Upon returning to Brisbane, Queensland Health denied an exemption to quarantine at home and instead required him to isolate in a hotel. Gary Ralph says he was advised by Queensland Health to catch an Uber or a taxi from the hotel for his chemotherapy treatments during quarantine. The exemption was granted after Health Minister Stephen Miles addressed the issue with Queensland Health. In national news, the Therapeutic Goods Association issued a $164,520 fine to a Sydney-based company for allegedly misleading the advertising for two complementary medicines. The ingredients from Pharmacare Laboratories warning allegedly omitted milk products from the list, resulting in two out of three children affected suffering a severe anaphylactic reaction. The Therapeutic Goods Act prohibits advertising that is misleading or likely to mislead. Professor John Skerritt, Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health, says omitting important information, such as life-threatening allergens, from medicine information and advertisements puts consumer health at risk. The Therapeutic Goods Association issued a $164,520 fine to Sydney-based company Pharmacare Laboratories for allegedly misleading the advertising for two complementary medicines. The ingredients warning allegedly omitted milk products from the list, resulting in two out of the three affected children suffering a severe anaphylactic reaction. The Therapeutic Goods Act prohibits advertising that is misleading or likely to mislead. Professor John Skerritt, Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health, says omitting important information such as life-threatening allergens from medicine information and advertisements puts consumer health at risk. The Edmund Rice Centre has expressed concern at the disregard for the needs of First Nations peoples and refugees in the federal budget. Two months ago, the Prime Minister signed a new Closing the Gap Agreement, committing federal and state governments to a long-term program to reduce the disparities in life expectancy, health, incarceration, education and employment between First Nations peoples and other Australians. Whilst funds have been allocated in the budget for reports on closing the gap targets, there have arguably not been enough funds allocated to assist in actually meeting these targets. In international news, US President Donald Trump is refusing to participate in a virtual second presidential debate with Democratic nominee Joe Biden following his coronavirus diagnosis. Spokesperson for the Democratic Party, Kate Bedingfield, says the debate should be rescheduled to October 22nd so the president is not able to evade accountability. In the meantime, Joe Biden will take questions from voters in a town hall event on October 15th, the same night the second debate was originally scheduled. 
Rallies in Indonesia are continuing for a third day as tens of thousands protest against the controversial Omnibus Jobs Creations Bill that became law on Monday. The bill makes significant changes to Indonesia's labour regulations, including abolishing the sectoral minimum wage in favour of minimums set by regional governors. The Indonesian government says the bill is designed to help recover Indonesia's economy, while critics say that the new law will harm workers and the environment. The International Trade Union Confederation said the bill would cut wages, remove sick leave provisions and other protections, and undermine job security. The weather today is sunny with a max of 31 degrees and a low of 14 degrees. There's a slight chance of a shower and a thunderstorm later in the day. That's all today for Z-Lines. Thank you for tuning in. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at 4ZZZ News. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist depression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift. This is Ian. Thanks to Jazz and Quentin for another Friday Neon. And thanks also to Grace for those news items, which um, bring us really to our show in a way. I A couple of items there that interested me. One was about the non-lethal control of sharks. And uh, the other one was about the federal budget, which more about that later on the show. The show today, we are going to feature a summary of the Assange matter, where it stands, waiting for final submissions and the judgment as to whether Julian Assange should be sent to the US on spy charges. And the second, um, we're going to attempt later in the show, um, well, we're actually going to do it, is we're going to have a sort of a pandemic concert, thanks to... Foco Nuevo, which um, we often mention on the show. Local musicians get together and they have concerts. And uh, now they've taken the radical step of going completely online because, during the pandemic. And um, anyway, we'll, we're going to, it's going to feature some uh, great Cuban musicians. And uh, there'll be a bit of Spanish in the back of the show, but don't worry about it if you can't speak Spanish because I'll be here helping you with some translations along the way. Now, just about that first item in the news about the non-lethal control of sharks, it reminded me of something. So I'm going to just create the atmosphere, a story. Swimming in shark sea, looking for memory in pink early light between devil deep and wide blue sea. This is a story about a woman who had been swimming 
on the same beach nearly every day for 14 years. She was taken by a shark. Some friends told me the beach was down near Rosedale on the southern coast of New South Wales. Uh, Tathra, I think, was the name of the, the, the town. Now, the reason why she was taken was that shark luring had baited with baited balloons had uh, were hooked underneath the surface and that of course attracted the sharks in this case it was done by fishermen without permission but ironically it's also the same means that is used for getting sharks on beaches in places like for example Stradbroke Island main beach would be alive this summer and just offshore if you look from the point there over the gorge walk you'll see these big um, sort of red and yellow floating balloons and beneath them there is a, a, a hooked line which has got fresh meat on it which attracts the sharks. Now unfortunately in Tathra the, that led to the that method led to the death of this woman who had been swimming there for 14 years. And uh, very sad, it affected, um, I know her friends, that it affected them and all their family, of course, it was terrible. That um, So I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when we do have a better means of shark control, one that doesn't kill the sharks because people may not realise, but, um, for example, the grey nurse shark, which used to be all over the waters of um, the reef in southern Queensland, uh, it's nearly extinct. You don't see that shark very often. You see bronze whalers and tiger sharks up on the waves at uh, Fraser Island, but not that. Anyway, a bit of background on that news report. The other one um, was the one about the budget. We wanted to interview um, a couple of people from Renewable Energy to see and uh, smart energy to see what was in the budget for renewables and you know you can expect not very much but one thing that did strike me about the budget was that they did declare what they said was an infrastructure spend and um, as Tony Windsor the member you you remember that guy that held the balance of power back in the days of of uh, Tony Abbott and 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 or I think the Labor Party when they were in Julia when she was the uh, Prime Minister, he he and this his mate uh, from nearby there they held balance of power. But this Tony Wims, the former member for New England, said that that declaration by the Treasurer in the budget this week about infrastructure spend is a sham, and he gave a good example something that I can vouch for, he said that the government claimed that they were spending a whole heap of money on reconstructing the New England Highway. That's the alternative way between Brisbane and Sydney um, and used to be the most popular way. Well, when I went there recently, I saw this reconstructed highway there and Tony Windsor pointed out after the budget was announced that the infrastructure spend is a sham because much of the money that they say they're going to spend in this budget has already been spent. And not only that, but the highway reconstruction is completed.
So it's there for everyone to see. It's pretty transparent. Not a very good look for Josh Frydenberg in his gas-led recovery budget and during the pandemic. Anyway, there's a lot of good things that they could spend their, uh, you know, that they could spend their money on, you know, big ticket items, big infrastructure, you know, you know what about what about a big freight rail system right through? I know they're saying they're going to do it, but what about really getting behind that and having a big, fast freight rail service between Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne? Anyway, let's get on with the show. Let's go now to the um, the summary that I've, I've prepared for on the Julian Assange matter. Just before, yes, we'll do that now. Niels Meltzer, the UN rapporteur on torture, has described the treatment of Julian Assange by the governments of the United Kingdom, the United States and Sweden as torture. Nonetheless, Meltzer has been ignored by these governments and the Australian government too. Much of the past week at Assange's extradition hearing in the Old Bailey has been concerned with the deteriorating state of Assange's mental health following his seven-and-a-half-year forced detention in the Ecuadorian embassy and the further year-and-a-half confinement in Belmas and the deterioration his mental health would suffer if he were extradited. The defence has argued Assange would be exposed to torture in the US prison system from a secretive form of extreme isolation in US federal prisons. It's called Special Administrative Measures, or SAMs. These prohibit prisoners who live under them from contact or communication with all but a handful of approved individuals. Prisoners subjected to this describe the experience as like living in a world by yourself in which they have almost no human contact. Many of those on SAMs have developed mental health issues as a result of the isolation. To counter this argument by the defence, who was saying you can't extradite a man so that he just goes insane, the prosecution has relied on the argument that Assange is simply malingering. The maximum security prison in Florence, Colorado, is where the US intends to incarcerate Julian Assange when he is convicted. Bay FM reporter Dr John Jiggins spoke with Kieran O'Reilly. He's an Assange supporter and Plowshares activist. He spoke to him about Florence and his own experiences in the US prison system and the normalisation of torture in the US under the war on terror. Let's go to that interview with, Jul- with Kieran O'Reilly now. The ADX maximum security prison in Florence, Colorado, is where the US intends to incarcerate Julian Assange when he's found guilty. In his submission to the ongoing extradition hearing, US Assistant Attorney Gordon Cromberg praised this security prison for its variety of life-enhancing activities. 
As a plowshare activist who was incarcerated in US prisons for over a year, what is your reaction? Yeah, I was sentenced along with three other pacifists, uh, Catholic worker plowshares activists who had disabled a B-52 bomber in a non-violent action a couple of weeks before the first Gulf War began. There was a debate between the Air Force and the prosecution of whether to charge us with sabotage, which would have been a national security thing, but the, the Air Force lost that debate and we were charged with conspiracy and damaged government property. <clears throat> Other people from our movement uh, were charged under sabotage and received 18 years in prison. Since I did my time and I was in county jails in New York, but also in federal penitentiaries in Oklahoma, Louisiana, and a county jail in, um, in Texas, things have got worse in the prison industry in the United States. Um, Florence, Colorado, and that's been brought up in Julian's extradition hearing is a probable place he'll be sent to, is the supermax in the prison system in, in the United States now. So as a federal prisoner, when, when I was incarcerated, prisons were, federal prisons were rated from about one to six um, in terms of security. So at the very lowest level, which is where um, you know, the wealthy go if they're ever <laughs> incarcerated, people like Michael Milken, etc. There's not even a wall, it's like, as people say, serving time, serving tennis, all the way up to Supermax, which when I was in prison was located in Marin, Illinois. But since then, they've built Florence, uh, which is even a more isolated place geographically in the mountains of Colorado. And in there, they've got people like the Unabomber, uh, the Boston Marathon bomber uh, El Chapo uh, from Mexico, and they'll—I would think—they'll definitely put Julian in there. It's also interesting to note that Woody Harrelson, the actor, his father died in Florence, Colorado. He was a prisoner there. Um, and what I've read about Florence, Colorado, is as a prisoner, you do not know where you are in the prison. You don't get to interact with any other prisoners. And um, as one former warden said, it's designed to drive you crazy. So a big difference. Uh, and Gareth Pierce, who's Julian's main solicitor in the extradition hearing, as she has argued against all extraditions uh, from Europe uh, to the United States, is a big difference is in, in Europe, the right to association, that is to associate with other human beings, is seen by the European Declaration of Human Rights um, and by the judicial system in Europe as a basic human right, as basic as food, clothing, ablutions, etc. But in the United States, the way the, I think the Eighth Amendment is interpreted by the Supreme Court is that human association is not seen as a basic human right and then they can hold you in solitary or isolation indefinitely. And I, I believe there's something like 60,000 people in uh, in isolation and solitary in the US prison system, which is, has expanded since I experienced it in the early 90s. So when I was in prison um, in 91, 92, uh, the prison population was 1.3 million. It is now 2.2 million. So uh, what I've also read about where Julian will, uh, he, he'll be sent to Florence, Colorado, uh, after he is sentenced and before that he'll be um, in isolation in Alexandria Detention Centre where Chelsea Manning has just spent time for refusing 
to to inform or give evidence against WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and from the in contempt of the grand jury. Mentioning Chelsea Manning, that's the example that will probably happen to Julian Assange. Instead of um, the sort of wonderful picture painted by the attorney for the US, what actually happened with Chelsea Manning? Chelsea was initially arrested in Baghdad. So Chelsea was initially detained in Kuwait and pretty much tortured uh, and then transferred to a marine base, even though uh, Chelsea was a member of the US Army, ended up in a marine base in Quatico. Now, do you want to explain pretty much tortured? Yeah, it was... Um, I think torture has become quite mainstream in the US now and uh, this is part of the paradigm shift with the following the 9-11 attacks. So it became acceptable at Guantanamo initially and uh, eventually they used it on one of their own soldiers, you know, and it, like her living conditions in Quantico were just completely in isolation. She was on a wing but she was the only person on that wing. From memory, the conditions were that she had to sleep from 9pm to 5am. But if she turned toward the wall in her sleep or put her arm over her head or anything like that, they'd come in and wake her up and put her in a um, stress position. And then once she woke at 5, she was not allowed to lie down on the bunk, wasn't allowed to exercise. And every 15 minutes, they demanded an audible response from her from 5am to 9pm. Are you all right? Yes, sir. Or okay, or whatever. And it's a bit like Chinese water torture, you know, this kind of repetitive thing. Well, they're recognised as forms of torture, aren't they? Sleep deprivation. Ah, uh, yeah. And it's... also being put in stress position. But when I say they're recognised, the US doesn't recognise them as torture. No, actually, the Brits were using them in Northern Ireland in the early 70s, hooding and stress positions. And the European court recognised it as torture they stopped doing that in the north of Ireland and you know they brought it back for the Iraq occupation so you know Chelsea was allowed one hour exercise a day in a larger room in shackles so Julian I think will be initially in what they call administration segregation and it'd be like 23 hours a day in a cell no interaction with other prisoners and a one hour exercise period in a larger cell He's already done 18 months in a maximum security prison in Belmarsh and what we're hearing through the courts and through this extradition hearing is that he did a lot better mentally in, when he was in general population interacting with other prisoners than he did once they put him in medical and pretty much put him in solitary. It's, it's, yeah, it's, really, it's really terrible what they're describing is going to happen to him. That is Plowshares activist Kieran O'Reilly talking about what would happen to Julian Assange were he, he to be extradited from the United Kingdom to the United States. Implied in that report by John Jiggins is that Julian Assange would not get a fair trial in the United States. He's being tried under really quite ancient spying legislation which was introduced during the first world war and it was for people who were selling secrets to the enemy but nonetheless uh, it seems to be clear that most of the commentators in the united kingdom at the old bailey and also in the united states seem to think that if he is extradited then it's a done deal he'll be convicted 
and sentenced to what I think is 170 years to spend their life in prison. And as uh, Kieran pointed out there, he'll be tortured um, in the same way that Chelsea Manning has been. I think that the decision on the extradition will be handed down after the US presidential election on, I think it's November the 2nd, but there will be an appeal depending on what happens. Let's go now to uh, a little more uplifting song by local band Jumping Fences. The song's called Satellites. It tries to capture a lot of what is going on during these times about ever-present technology, climate change, the rising seas and a deep-seated urge to find our space in this crazy world. Jumping fences with satellites.
Coffee for Home, drop by the Coffee Roaster on the corner of Montague Road and Anthony Street West End to roast your own coffee. Their in-house designed and manufactured Piccolo Chinook small batch coffee roaster allows you to roast coffee the way you want in only 15 minutes. With the choice of over 50 coffee origins to choose from, you can roast an award-winning single origin or create your own tasty new blend. The Coffee Roaster, sponsors of 4 Z. You're on the Paradigm Shift with Ian. Uh... Before that uh, sponsorship announcement, there was uh, a summary, I think, a fairly good one by John Jiggins and Kieran O'Reilly of the state of play with the Assange extradition trial. And we will be following that later when the summary arguments are put. Uh, it won't be for a few months now and the judgment won't come out till next year. So unless something really spectacular happens, that's the final coverage that we'll have on on the paradigm shift for some time. But keep an eye on the news and see what happens there. It's a great shame um, that Assange has been put through all of this. He should be released today. Now let's talk about um, my co-announcer, Andy Payne, is normally here, but he's out there trying to stop the Adani coal from being shipped from the ports. Um, the politicians have seemed to have given up on that. They seem to back Adani all the way. With this state government election coming up, both major parties support the Adani coal mine. Anyway, Annie's also around looking at Daintree rainforests and all kinds of things in the deep north. So let's just go to a song by him called The Politics of Possibility and see what he has to say. Talking to this guy And he says to me Sounds like you're one of those extreme greens Well I just don't think destroying our planet is very wise He says you know not everything's black and white Oh but he said anything about monochrome Forget black and white Use your imagination Let's talk about the full spectrum About colours yet unseen Let's talk about the politics Of possibility 
be inspired but I nearly fell asleep They told us how to be a revolutionary But all their references came from the 19th century Then they gave a list of everything we do that's wrong Kept going on and on until they covered everyone They told us how things were and are but not how they could be They forgot the politics of possibility can get you down I don't need to tell you something here is very wrong But there's another world that can occasionally be seen In our stories, our friendships and our dreams You won't read it in the news or see it on TV of possibility That's The Politics of Possibility by Andy Payne since he's not here to Give, uh, to announce the program, we'll just try to have him uh, sing uh, sing some songs. Uh, I've got to let someone in the door at the, down here at the moment. We've got people coming in for the next show. Anyway, um, now we're going to have this uh, bit, of, bit of an experiment here now. Uh, a COVID pandemic concert on Paradigm Shift. Uh, it was 25 minutes to one, so let's give it a shot. Um, first, to say a few words about the COVID pandemic and where we're at. I know there was a news item in headlines earlier that um, Grace read out, but there has been um, quite a lot of different takes on it and everyone wants to have their say. I've noticed what's been happening in Sweden is that they're just letting it rip, uh, unlike the strategy here in Australia, and um, it, they're facing fierce backlash because you know the the, the level of um, of um, death is very high. In that you know they're getting they're looking at maybe seventeen percent of all those people who get infected who die of the of the disease. So, okay, there's been a lot of debate about the strategies in from scientists in the UK and people like Peter Hitchens um, and some of the U European scientists. There's an excellent article that summarises this in Science uh, magazine and um, I'll, I'll put the link to that on our Facebook page but it's, um, it's just called the name of that particular article is, is it says um, COVID-19 reporting 
Um, it's been so, so unreal. Critics of Sweden's lax pandemic policies face fierce backlash. Um, on some points, the the article makes some sense. Everyone wants to try to look at and see what you know what is known, but really not much is known from a population health point of view. And you know, people like myself would come down on the Australian side of the response, uh, try to lock down and and wait out till we get a vaccine. And um, I know it, it it looks like in the UK, Spain, and France, there's no way that they will have another lockdown. That um, their death rates are now lower than they were before, and it, the question is, will the hospitals fill up and the death rates rise again. So as a response to that, some local musicians and musicians overseas have been uh, doing some COVID concerts and um, we're going to go to one now that is run by Foco Nuevo. It's called Foco Nuevo in October. It was on last Friday and uh, it's run by a local band called Jumping Fences. And um, so let's, let's go and hear... Uh, what they the the music that they've got together during the the pandemic. Um, there will be some Spanish here, but don't fear. I will try to um, translate the words and do a bit of a voiceover for it. So let's go to Jumping Fences, Sue and Lachlan, and their invited guests Eric Sanchez and Enid Rosales in concert during the COVID pandemic. We're going to start with Eric Sanchez and Enid Rosales. Eric we met in 1996. He was a part of a group of young singer-songwriters who were emerging at the time and it was tremendous uh, to be able to hear uh, this new music that was emerging in Cuba at the time. We kept in touch and in 2008 we met Eric again with Enid who he had teamed up with and was playing with in a duo. So we're really pleased to be able to present their music, which was recorded as part of a series of concerts by the Cuban Institute of Music during the coronavirus pandemic. Hola, es un gusto para nosotros poder estar con ustedes aquí en su peña, en Foco Nuevo. Les mandamos un gran saludo desde La Habana, desde Cuba. Bueno, mi nombre es Eric Sánchez, soy un cantautor, un trovador. Eh... Con mucha suerte conozco a, a Sue y a Loaclan desde hace muchísimos años. Eh, estamos encantados de poder colaborar con ellos en esta peña. Eh, hago un trabajo con, con mi amiga Enid hace aproximadamente unos 15 años, donde eh, interpretamos mis canciones a guitarra y tres cubanos eh, y dos voces. Y, y algo de eso van a poder ver bueno, yo soy Enid Rosales, soy tresera, interpreto un instrumento cubano que es el tres, el tres cubano que van a poder observarlo. También soy cantautora, tengo mis canciones y hace ya 13 años que comparto con, con Eric Sánchez también sus canciones. Y nada, estamos muy agradecidos de, de poder estar aquí con ustedes, que puedan disfrutar el material y ahí se los dejamos. Y bueno, yo también toco sus canciones con ella. Entonces, bueno, que, que disfruten mucho de nuestra pequeña y modesta presentación. 
Gracias. Chao.
you're on the Paradigm Shift with Ian. It's coming to quarter to one, and we're listening to a concert with, um, it's called Estamos Contigo, We're With You. It's really a pandemic uh, concert, by um, sponsored by Jumping Fences, uh, and it's called um, uh, Foco Nuevo. We're now going to a song that uh, by Eric Sanchez and Enid Rosales, um, and it's about Havana, the capital of Cuba. Let's go to it now.
You're on the Paradigm Shift, and that was um, Brisa Passagera by Eric Sanchez and sung by Ined Rosales on the, the Cuban Trez. It's a sort of a, a guitar with three double strings. Um, the band's called Estamos Contigo, and uh, we, we probably got some time, we've got time for some more. Uh, so let's go back to that concert now. And uh, it's put on by Jumping Fences. It's called Foco Nuevo during the COVID. Todos los días cuando despierto En este pueblo casi desierto Abrigo la esperanza de siempre Aunque esté todo tan diferente Abajo sigue el parque junto a las hojas cayendo Como un faro encendido en memoria del farolero Y salgo de casa para encontrarme contigo Que cambias de senda cuando sabes que te sigo Que pasan volando, la vida se nos va, hay luz. 
you're on the Paradigm Shift and you're listening to Eric Sanchez and Enid Rosales, Brisa Paragia, Mini Passing Breeze. And then we'll go out with another song later. Listening to Eric Sanchez and Enid Rosales, uh, Estamos Contiga, meaning we're with you during the COVID pandemic. And we've got to thank um, the uh, Jumping Fences who put this concert on every month now. And uh, if, you, if you go to their Facebook page, Jumping Fences, under the name of Foco Nuevo, uh, you can see the monthly concert happening on the first Friday of each month. So that was uh, an extract from the October one. We're coming up towards um, opinion police time now. And I'm thinking, well, since we're in this um, COVID COVID situation, uh, we we might just um, try to go to uh, Grafton Street busking and see how they deal with these uh, with this situation. Um, this is an amazing uh, place in Grafton Street in Dublin uh, where you've got these these uh, buskers who come from all over the world. We're going to play a cover. It's a Michael Jackson cover, a bit unusual for Paradigm Shift. It's called Billie Jean. It's uh, sung by Fabio Rodriguez, who's uh, Brazilian by birth, and uh, what a fantastic um, guitarist and singer this man is. And he is ably supported by Dublin's own Ali Sherlock, who busks in this um, Grafton Street Mall so often. So I'll say goodbye from till next week. Uh, this is Ian from Paradigm Shift. Let's go out with this incredible performance by two buskers in Dublin. 
Michael Jackson's Billie Jean.
Z-Lines, keeping you informed about the important stuff. Good afternoon, this is Grace and Lily Rose with your 12pm Z-Lines. The Palaszczuk government announced a new roadmap this morning outlining the steps to ease restrictions. From 4pm today, Queenslanders can enjoy a drink or meal out without having to be seated. Further restrictions will be eased later in the month, including opening the border to New South Wales, as long as there is no unlinked community transmission in the state for 28 days. In political news, former Senator Andrew Bartlett has been chosen to replace Greens candidate John Meyer, as the party's Clayfield hopeful following an internal feud over campaign funding. Mr Bartlett represented Queensland in the Senate from 1997 to 2008 as a member of the Australian Democrats. The seat is held by former State Treasurer and LNP leader Tim Nichols on a 2.4% margin. Australians are urged to prepare for the summer disaster season which officially begins this month. Emergency Management Australia released its annual disaster season briefing following consultation with police, fire authorities and emergency services in every state and territory. Minister for Agriculture, Drought,